It's Matthew chapter 15, 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed immediately, instantly. Jesus went away from there. He's just been in a, another one of his interchanges with the Pharisees and the scribes. And so he went away from there, and he went away. He went north. He was already in Galilee, which is on the north side of the Promised Land, and he goes north. Remember, from about the time of the feeding of the 5,000 on, there's been a bit of a desire for some peace and quiet, where he could spend some time just with his disciples perhaps teaching them. And so perhaps some peace and quiet could be found by heading north into the region of Tyre, Sidon, in Syria. Jesus and his disciples, they'd been looking for, at, looking for it for a while, and maybe this place outside of the historical boundaries of Israel, maybe that would provide just, just that. Since the religious leaders and many others wouldn't travel outside on Israel unless absolutely necessary. But as they go, a woman, a mother, she had a daughter who had come to be severely oppressed by a demon. And she found him. Do you wonder, as she left her house that morning, did she encounter any neighbors who inquired where she was going? Perhaps they ignored her because of the affliction of her daughter and thought it best just to keep their distance. But somehow she'd heard that this rabbi, Jesus, had recently come into the region. We don't know how, we're not told how. But we, she had to have heard it because she ends up there in his presence. We know that his fame had spread throughout all Syria. We read that in Matthew 4.24. And perhaps because of that, she'd heard that all the sick... All the diseased, all those with pains, epileptics and paralytics, had all been healed by him. And yes, even those oppressed by demons, they'd known his healing. Nothing had helped so far in her situation with her daughter. And now that he had come into the region, she hopes... And she might find him, for there was nowhere and no one else to whom she could go. Do you feel the concern, the weight of this mother for her child? Well, it brings up the question, the question of faith. Because what draws her to this one, this Rabbi Jesus, who's, who's a Jew and, and she's a Canaanite? Well, it's faith that gets her to go. 
But what is it? I mean, we say, have faith. What is it? Do you have a definition in mind? Perhaps a verse comes to mind. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's Hebrews 11.1. 1. Or perhaps Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And those are good. They're encouraging. They're comforting. And they build us up. But if someone said, tell me what faith is, how would you go about defining it? How would you describe it? Does a particular person come to mind? Maybe someone you know named Faith? Maybe they're a good example. Maybe not. It might be someone in your life, or one of the biblical characters that we meet as we travel through the text of Scripture. Does this unnamed woman come to mind? And, and maybe this is just me, but do you have a group of people or a couple people that you'd really like to meet when you get to heaven? This woman for me, over the past week as I've gotten to spend time here, this is one that... If she wasn't on the list before, she's there now. Because if we do get to meet and spend time with people and haven't asked them questions, I think maybe this is one of them that I most want to meet. Because did you hear what Jesus said to her? Oh, woman, great is your faith. How many people can you think of that Jesus said that to? To his own disciples, what has he just said to them? Oh, you of what? Little faith. And they've seen everything he's done, heard every word he's spoken. And to this woman who's a Canaanite, a Syrophoenician, a Gentile woman who hasn't heard or seen nearly as much as they have, he says, oh, woman, great is your faith. I, I got some faith to learn. Here we meet a woman whom God incarnate declared possessed great faith. And we don't meet many in Scripture who can claim such a distinction. That should catch our attention, but draw us in to sit and consider. Here is a portrait of great, or we might say mature, faith. So maybe you struggle with a definition of faith, but maybe after today, or maybe you already say, here's the picture, here's the portrait, here's what it looks like. Because if we're honest, we, we, we walk through this text, and, and it's difficult, it's hard, because there's some things in here that we go, whoa, Jesus, that wasn't very nice. Unfortunately, many in recent history, both within and outside the church, have rather chosen to cast aspersions toward Jesus for how he interacts with this desperate woman, rather than learn from the Savior of the universe and this woman who takes no umbrage at what the Savior does or says to her at any point. We try to be wiser than God. I would encourage us, let's not be distracted or give countenance to such ungodly and unrighteous opinions of men. But rather, let's be taught and shown by God's word what this mature faith looks like and pray that it might be what he works within and among us. So Jesus, he goes to this foreign place, this district of Tyre and Sidon. It's in the Roman province of Syria. It's to the north of Israel. It's outside the historical boundaries of Israel and as we've already mentioned, in Matthew 4.24, it tells us his fame, that is Jesus' fame, it spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. So the fame is spread. He hasn't spent a lot of time there. He hasn't spent any time there. This is the only time that we're aware of that he spent time there. 
But we know that he's mentioned them because in Matthew 11, 20 through 22, he specifically mentions Tyre and Sidon, the region that this lady's from, in his rebuke of Chorazin. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And now Jesus goes into this region of Tyre and Sidon, and there's a woman who likely, maybe she's only heard of these wonderful works. She hasn't seen what Chorazin saw. And what do we see coming from her? What do we witness? This is proof of what he said. Here he meets this woman that he's going to say has great faith. But within the context and the unfolding of Matthew's gospel as he writes it, these are Gentile lands. And the issue that's just been at hand is what defiles a person. And the big issue was, was food. You ain't washing your hands before you eat your food. Jesus has already answered that question. That doesn't defile a person. It's what comes out of their heart. And there's almost this unspoken continuation of the narrative because he goes into Gentile lands that by some accounts, by many in those days, would cause defilement. Because they're outside of the promised land. Those are the Gentiles. And to go among the Gentiles is to make yourself unclean. But what Jesus has already declared, that if what goes into you cannot defy you, then guess what? Where you are physically, your physical location can't defile you. It doesn't mean you shouldn't pick where you go with wisdom, but defilement doesn't come by physical location. But also consider something that we've already briefly mentioned here. As we move into this foreign land, into this place that would be considered unclean, and this Gentile woman who Matthew calls a Canaanite, which should draw us way back into the Old Testament, the Canaanites were those that were in the land that were to be eliminated by the Israelites, and yet she's a descendant of them. Now, Matthew's hinted that, that the mission is going to go beyond just the borders of Israel. He gave us that in the opening with the genealogy. And by the time we get to the end of Matthew, he sends them into all nations. But Jesus is still working, accomplishing the mission for which he was sent. But he moves into this foreign land, and there's this Gentile woman. Consider how she responds. Compared to the people that Jesus, he's been openly ministering among. They've seen the miraculous works, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, the lepers healed, all of it. They've seen all of it. They've heard his teaching and they're amazed because they've never heard someone teach like this. And yet there's still what among them? I'm not sure. And the religious leaders are like, he ain't it, chief. How does that work? But here's this Gentile woman who hasn't been privy to Jesus' public teaching, who maybe hasn't seen him do these mighty works, and where does she go? What does she acknowledge him as? Who does she acknowledge him to be? And so she comes. He went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So, And it says, but he didn't answer her a word. Silence. So there's a, we see here a test of faith. She comes because she's heard of what he can do. And she comes and listen to how she comes. She comes unlike anybody else we've seen so far. The religious leaders certainly don't approach this way. 
And this Gentile woman comes saying, have mercy on me. She has this interesting cry. The Greek indicates that she repeats her cry for help over and over until the streets are ringing with her cries. How many of you enjoy it when your child walks behind you continuing to pepper you with questions over and over and over? And even if they change, it's like, and this, 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 this. Do you start to get a little bit, well, this woman's crying out the same thing over and over and over and over until the streets ring with her cries. Everybody could tell you what her concern was, and we see what the disciples' response is, which we'll get to. But she continues to cry out, have mercy on me. And remember, mercy is not receiving what one deserves. She's not coming saying what? I deserve this. She comes asking for what? As she says, have mercy on me. She comes seeking what she knows she doesn't deserve. From the outset, this woman is not coming with a spirit of entitlement, but in humility and hope in the one to whom she comes. And then she says, O Lord, Son of David. And now Lord could be just a general like Sir in our day, but she follows it up with Son of David, which gives us a hint that this Lord here, she's not just saying Lord as a, as a term of respect. Arguably it's no, Lord, like God. O Lord, Son of David. It's a messianic title. This You, you want to see, see the people that Jesus has just been among get real antsy Call him son of David. It's going to happen later on too. But it's a messianic title. She's heard enough that she knows that there's this figure that's coming, this one who's coming, who would be a deliverer. And she, this Gentile woman, says, Oh Lord, son of David. This goes all the way back to 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, where God gives a promise to David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So Solomon was the immediate fulfillment, but Solomon didn't remain on the throne forever. Here comes one who will remain on the throne forever. She recognizes him. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the son of David. If you go back to Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, this, this is the person within the context of Matthew who declares him the son of David among people. What Matthew said at the beginning, that he's telling you of this one who is the son of David. And it comes from a Gentile woman. So she says, have mercy on me. She, she acknowledges who he is. And then she says, here's, here's, here's my concern. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Here's what's brought her to him. And we don't know how this oppression began. And we don't know for how long it's persisted. We don't know how long this condition has been there. Yet here she comes, beseeching him for mercy, addressing him as Lord, and as that messianic one who is to come to be that son of David. And what does Jesus do? Silence, that's right. He's silent. It says, he answered her not a word. Notice, it doesn't say he didn't hear her. 
just that he didn't answer. And before you get on your high horse and go, now Jesus, we need to talk about manners, and that's rude when someone talks to you. That's not what's going on here. We're told he answered her not a word, not that he didn't hear her. But we can pause there and go, how often do we assume that because we don't receive an immediate response that someone isn't listening? Maybe they have heard and they're working on the response because they want to respond rightly and in a good way. And if they respond in the moment, that won't happen. Now, what emotions does that awaken within us when we don't get that immediate response that we're looking for? And you have to do the survey of your own heart, but if what you discover there is something that needs to be repented of, here's the joy of being in Christ. Repent, and you'll know that forgiveness. But we also have to recognize that sometimes Christ is silent for very good reason. But sometimes when Christ is silent, not only do we sometimes have emotions that awaken within us, and he answered her not a word, what do we do? Well, I guess he has nothing for me, and I go where? Home. What does she not do? Would you return home? Neighbors saying, told you so, he's, he's Jewish Messiah. He's, he's not for us. He was never going to receive you. She didn't turn back. She didn't turn back because he didn't answer right away. She remained. And here we get a glimpse of what true faith, and, and maybe we would want to say mature faith, it perseveres. True saving faith must have who? God. True saving faith must have Christ. It's not content or satisfied with anything else. And if it is, what isn't it? It's not true faith. True faith yearns for, hungers, thirsts after Christ and Him alone. And that's all that it will be satisfied with. And so this one who's come and who's desperate for this help, she knows something that all true Christians know. At least two things in their spiritual pilgrimage. What do we know? We know the presence of God. Well, she knows that who is this? She said it. Son of David. That's a messianic title. Son of God. So she's in the presence of God. And there's joy. The joy of community with him. Here I am with him. This one who is this. But they also know what? They know the sorrow of a silent and apparently absent God. Anybody ever asked something and heard nothing in return? Seen nothing change? Has that tested you? Has it tried you? But we know, and this is why we have to know the Word, we know that God always hears. And we know that He immediately answers, but He doesn't always unfold those immediate answers right before our eyes so we can see them. We go back to Daniel and we read about his prayer. It was 30 days before the messenger gets there to say, from the time you started to pray, the answer was there. It took 30 days for here. Sometimes it takes longer than 30 days. But where do we turn when we experience the silence of God? And the silence of God is not a light thing. It, it probably makes us tremble. If you want something to go listen to, Sorry, Sunday school. I mentioned Andrew Peterson this morning, too. 
Listen to Andrew Peterson's The Silence of God. I don't care if you like his style of music or his voice. He has a wonderful way of writing some of these things in a poetic expression that sometimes can reach the heart in ways that, frankly, my inability won't allow. But that silence of God, what do we still have in the silence of God? In the silence of God, we still have Scripture. So if God chooses to remain silent, where do we run? Do we run back home, wherever home might be? Or have we made Scripture home? Because in the silence of God, He's given us His Word that it would be a comfort, that it would be a provision, that in the midst of perhaps His saying, hey, I'm, I've got the answer and it's coming, but it's going to be a little while to work all the way through. Come to my Word. Rest in it. It will speak, it will mold, it will comfort us. But there's something else too. In His silence, if you are in Christ, if we are in Christ, who still resides within us? In the silence of God, the Holy Spirit still resides within the hearts of His people. Nearer. Nearer than anything else and anyone else could ever be. Closer than we could imagine. He's still there. And then we have to go, well, what about that silence? Well, could the apparent silence of Christ be intended to draw you closer by refining your prayers? Maybe try praying his words back to him. She's going to do that here shortly. By bringing you closer to praying without ceasing. Or perhaps to be silent before him and know that he is God and that he is at work. So that Jesus, he's silent right now. But we get real quick, we see, we see maybe, you know, this might be one of those spots where I have to remind us, before you start wagging your finger at those disciples too quick, look at yourself first. Because listen to the disciples. I mean, aren't these a cuddly, loving bunch right here? His disciples come and they begged him, send her away, for she's crying out after us. Jesus, this woman is just annoying us. She's here and she's crying out and I can't take it anymore. They don't care about her plight. She's already said what her concern is, right? They don't, they don't care about what's breaking her heart. But there's something else in here that until this week, I didn't catch because I'm slow more often than I'd like to admit. Send her away for she's crying out after who? Us. Wait a second. Wait just a minute. Who did she cry out after? Oh, son of David. She wasn't crying out after them. But how often when someone comes crying out, and go, oh, they're crying out and they're just wearing me down. It's like maybe they're not crying out for you, but it's hard for you to hear. They're crying out for him. And you're the one that he's put in their path to be the hands or the feet or the words, or just the presence. How often do we get on our God high horse? No, 
they weren't crying out after us. They were crying after him. It's pretty clear. Son of David. Not one of those 12 Jewish boys would say, oh yeah, that's me if you asked him, are you the son of David? Remember, he brings people to you that you would bring them to him. It's not always going to be comfortable. How comfortable was it for Christ to bring you to God? I mean, maybe that's a little too on the nose, but what did he do? He died. Rose again. To reconcile you. So the first test of faith that comes here is silence. And she doesn't leave. She doesn't leave. And then he gives this answer. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Oh, what is she? She's a Canaanite. She's a Gentile. I wasn't sent to you. Anybody want that to be what they hear? <laughs> and we struggle with this because of, of where we are in the unfolding of, of history, right? We, we sit after the, the dividing wall had been destroyed through Christ. We have to remember as we read this where we are in the unfolding of redemptive history. Jesus in his earthly ministry was sent to the Jews. To the Jew first and also the Greek is how Paul would later write this time and again. He's, that's where his primary ministry was. We've had hints that it's going to expand beyond that, but his primary mission here has been to be sent to the Jews. The full measure of his earthly ministry, once accomplished, would go forward to everyone, but the dividing wall has not yet been torn down. And so as Jesus answers, he's speaking in that prophetic earthly, that role that he was coming into, was to go to them, to the lost sheep of Israel. And so he says this, and we recognize where it is, but notice what she doesn't do. She doesn't respond as though she's been insulted or hurt or offended. She came and what did she do? She came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. She doesn't respond like Naaman back in 2 Kings 5 did. Naaman was the general of the Syrian army. Same area. Comes, he's a leper, and, 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 and the little slave girl said, you need to go see the prophet in Israel because, oh, he could heal you. And he shows up, and he says, go wash in the Jordan seven times. You'll be new, good as new, right as rain. And he says, are the waters of the Jordan as good as the waters of the rivers of Syria? Good thing he had a faithful servant to say, hey, if he told you to do any number of like bat flips and jumping through fiery hoops and you name it, wouldn't you have done it? Well, yeah. And you're not going to just go take a bath seven times? He listens to reason and goes and is healed. But here, there's no offense on her. She comes and she does what? He's just said, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And she comes and bows at his feet. Lord, help me. So first kneeling, I mean, when you get down and you kneel, When's the last time any of you did that? What's it a posture of? Submission. Submission and worship. Now, this does not mean that every time you come in from now on, you need to kneel whenever we... No. 
Okay? We're supposed to worship at all times, but it's in posture of worship and of submission. And what is she doing here as she comes? She is submitting to him in this posture of worship, and she says three words, which are three of the most important words a human being can ever say. Lord, he who is above, he who is God, Lord, me, where is she? She's down, she's on the earth, me, Lord, me, what connects them? Help. Who is Christ? He is Lord and he is the one who has come to help and he is the one who has put on the flesh so that he would know what it is and exactly what it is to be you. He is the one who connects heaven and earth and helps. Lord, help me. She didn't take offense. But notice something else. Someone doesn't show up here. Jesus wanted to deal with who? Her. She doesn't mention her daughter here. Now that doesn't mean, that does not mean that she cares any less about the plight and the affliction of her daughter. But she's been brought to a place of, Lord, help me. Joel Beakey says in his comment on this, he says, I've often thought that one of the reasons God gives us children is to deal with us. Ah, the parents, all. <laughs> Make no mistake, she doesn't care any less about her daughter. But Jesus has brought her to a place where I'm going to deal with you right before me face to face. We know what's coming for the daughter. But that test of faith, there was an apparent rejection. So we've had apparent silence, we've had apparent rejection, and now the last one might be the hardest. And he answered, after Lord help me, he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This test. How many of you, please call me a dog. I'd really enjoy that. And in this day and age, to be called a dog, that really, I mean, not that it's not an insult now. <laughs> but they were unclean animals. They were defiled. Now, the term that Jesus uses is little dogs, because by this time there were some that did keep little pets. But notice, notice once again, at silence, she wasn't offended. At, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She wasn't offended. And he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she is not what? She's not offended. She's not offended. And Jesus, what he's talking about here is the right serving of food. How many of you that have dogs? And if you, I mean, you love your dogs, right? But if you've just made a meal, who do you put the meal before first? The people. Because why? They're yours. I'm not for the dogs, not. And where does the dog go? Some of you, it's like we have strict rules and they're outside and then once we're done, they can come in. Some people, it's like, there's little eyes by the table. You know, shut up. And it never shuts up. But then when it's all done, you're like, okay, here's the scraps. But you see the order. Who eats first? The people. And then what's left over goes to those dogs. It's the right serving of food. The food is for the children first. And in this case, remember where we are in the unfolding of Revelation history. 
The children here are the children of Israel, those that God has set apart through whom the one who would save the children of Abraham would come. And so the bread would be set before them. And we have to get something straight in our minds right now because sometimes we hit that and something goes haywire in our fallen brain. Because Jesus did something that was really uncomfortable. Saying something that's uncomfortable is not necessarily a sin. How many of us sometimes need to hear something uncomfortable? How many of us have heard something uncomfortable from someone we are sure loves us and wants the best for us? And though it wasn't easy to hear and it wasn't comfortable to hear, it was good to hear. Now he said something to her that's uncomfortable, but what we need to do, because here's where some people say, Jesus sinned against this woman. No, he didn't. I don't have to explain it, but I'm going to. That Jesus didn't sin in anything he said here or ever is evident. Early in Jesus' ministry, he said he came to fulfill the law, and that required the law to be kept in every way to the smallest detail and at the deepest level. The evidence that he accomplished such obedience is revealed by his resurrection. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, if Jesus had sinned in anything he said, or that he thought, or that he did, it stands to reason that he wouldn't have risen on the third day. But he did. So we have to look at this and go, no matter how uncomfortable it might make me, though I don't like how he addressed this woman, he did not sin against her or anyone else. She what? She agreed with him. It's not right to give the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. There's no argument here. She says, yes, Lord. You're right. And I'm not taking issue with the order at all. She prays his words back to him. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even those little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She's called him Lord. She's called him son of David. And now she calls him what? Master. And she's content with whatever station that is because whose table am I at? Yours. Yours. We are a people far too easily offended. This woman of mature faith and apparent insult, she's not offended at all, it doesn't seem. We, though, we look at ourselves. Go look at yourself in the mirror. How easily offended are you? You don't have to air it right now. We are a people far too easily offended, and it is in direct proportion. That offense is in direct proportion to just how highly we esteem ourselves and think little, not of others but of God. When you are offended, it's not because of how little you think of others or God. It's because of how much you think of yourself and how little you think of Him. And this woman who's this distressed 
It's just this beautiful portrait of mature faith. As Jesus says this, she says, Yes, Lord, yet even those little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table and they're full. She persists and she presents before him what he had said. She took the words of Christ and prayed them back to him. And what does she receive? O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Who did he not forget about throughout this whole exchange? That daughter. But great, mature is your faith. The only one we hear Jesus say this to in Matthew other than her is that Roman centurion back in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. He said he was amazed by his faith. There's such an utter lack of entitlement here. This woman, she's like that persistent widow of Luke 18, 1 through 8. What did she do? She kept coming. She kept submitting herself at the feet of the Lord. She's like Jacob of old in Genesis 32. She kept wrestling. And his answer to her was what? Be it done for you as you desire. Here's the keys of the kingdom. What you ask will be done. Why could he open it up to her? Because what did she want more than anything else? And he knew it. She wanted him. She wanted Christ. But if you go back and you look at Matthew chapter 7, this will be your homework if you like homework. If you don't, it's still your homework. 7 through 27 of Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given. She asked, she's seeking, she's knocking, and she's not going to go away. Enter by the narrow gate. This Gentile woman, who's she come to? She's come to the narrow gate. The one who will lead her into that celestial city. The tree and the fruit, you'll recognize them by their fruits. What kind of fruit does this Gentile woman have? Such sweet fruit, the fruit of faith. And then you get to those words in 21 through 23 where these people come and say, we've done this and we've done that. And there are these great, spectacular, marvelous things. And Jesus' response to them is, depart from me, I never knew you. But what's his response to her? An unnamed Gentile woman. He knows her. And where is she building her house? Nowhere else but on that rock. But how could Jesus bestow such wonderful blessings upon her? The answer is in who he is. Because what did Jesus Christ do? Jesus Christ bore the burden of the silence of his father. Christ taught the woman through his silence because he faced the real silence of his own father. He was not pushed away with one hand and drawn with the other. He was pushed away with both hands and he cried out in the most deafening silence the world has ever known, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me. He went through that so you as a believer might never face anything more than apparent silence. You may face the shadow of silence at times, but he endured the substance of it for your sake. And so he will not be silent forever. The psalmist in Psalm 28 
1 says, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if, I be, if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. And then finishes in verses 6 through 9, Blessed be the Lord, for he's heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. He endured that silence so you don't have to endure it. Jesus Christ bore the burden of rejection by his Father, the abandonment of his disciples. He was ignored by the realm of nature, and, he was the, and even the demons of hell mocked him as he hung between earth and heaven. He suffered total rejection. So we have silence born by the Savior, rejection born by the Messiah. What about insult? He was insulted as no man ever was, as he hung atoning for the sins of men that cursed him. said, hey, if you're really this, why don't you come down? Betrayed by a best friend. He was insulted as no man ever was, and yet he stayed on the cross and went on being insulted so that he could bear the substance of insult for you. This is why and how he could give what he gave to that woman. Why might we think the woman should have departed at Jesus' silence or his presumed rejection or his presumed insult? It's because that's how we respond or have responded when he's responded to us in a similar fashion, right? But here's the thing, to depart from Christ when he doesn't respond as we think he should, what does that reveal? That reveals the painful truth that we believe we can find our comfort, our satisfaction, our provision, and or our care somewhere else. It reveals that we desire something other than him who bore all of that for us. It puts us in the seat of God. We need to know that God will test our faith as he did with this woman. That's his prerogative, and there's no sin in that. Because it is always his intention to mature us for his glory and for the good of his people. He will never tempt us. And he's told us that when temptation comes, he will provide the means of escape. What we need to recognize and we need to know is that Jesus is never really silent to his people. He never rejects them. He never insults them. But he uses apparent silence, apparent rejection. He'll use apparent insult to mature our faith so that we will grow in communion with him, with whom we are in union by faith because nothing and no one can separate us from him. And we ask even so, Lord, increase our faith. His faith pursues Jesus. It fights through obstacles. It pleads for mercy, for his sovereign favor. Faith is that instrument through which I'm united through Christ with the great God of the universe. Faith gives me my gives my life breadth and depth and height and meaning. For the unsaved, the li- their life is small and restricted. But if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, your life is large because you belong to a big God. The one who holds everything in his hand. 
And this faith, it's not worked up in you. It's given you by a merciful Father. It's fixed upon His Son who's provided everything for you, and it's received by the Spirit, by Spirit-renewed hearts and minds, and exercised by Spirit-empowered and shaped hands and feet. That we would hear not as the disciples did, we would respond as Christ did, to the plight of those around us. But like this woman, every problem you have, Brothers and sisters, whatever it may be is designed by God to mature you in the faith so that you become a wrestler with God and a beggar, a beggar who stays at that door, sticks their toe in that door to the throne of grace. She would receive. What Jesus gives us here in this picture of how he responds, because he does respond and he holds nothing back from her, though the process of getting there, we we look at it and go, oh, he will use everything to shape us and to mold us and conform us ever more into his image. He teaches us here not only what mature faith looks like, but how it is matured by Christ. He will not sin against his people, and he will use any means necessary to increase our faith. Praise God, and may he do so for each of us and for us as a church.